if you have your Bibles with you. If you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week we started a series. We're calling it All Adds Up and we're taking it from the uh, fifth verse of 2 Peter 1. Where Peter writes, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now, if you are following after Christ, this list ought to truly intrigue you. I mean, you need to, and you would want to say, how does this intersect with my life? And this is why. He goes on to say, for if you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a phenomenal promise. Your significance spiritually in this earth has absolutely nothing to do with gifting. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with your education, your opportunities, who you know, who's your daddy. It has nothing to do with any of those things. You control 100%. If I'm not reading this correctly, you control 100% your spiritual significance in this world. Because Peter says that if you add to these things in increasing measure... Well, make sure you're not ineffective or unproductive. Now, a key part here is the increasing measure part. We may have tried to add some of these things at some point in the past, but let me ask you convicting questions for myself and probably everybody in this room. But are you more self-controlled right now than you were six months ago, a year ago? Are you more godly right now today? Have you been adding godliness? You're more godly today right now than you were three years ago? Are, are you, you have more brotherly love, more love for the body than you did a year ago, three years ago, five years ago? Peter says we have to add, but it's not a one-time thing. It is, it is a present. It is continually in increasing measure. Today, we have to be adding. But Peter says, if you do, I promise you, Holy Spirit says, you won't be ineffective and unproductive. He goes on. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you add these things to your faith, you will never fall. My goodness, the headlines are always filled with believers who fall. Peter says, you want, you want to finish well? Peter says, I can promise you that you will finish well. That you'll get, I guarantee it. If. You make sure these qualities are added to your faith in increasing measure. Now, the guys he's writing to are going to face extreme prejudice and extreme injustice and extreme inequality and extreme temptation and extreme torture for their faith. And they got to be wondering, man, when the heat gets turned up and it's going to be turned up, will I will I stand strong? And Peter says, yes, you will. If. You add to your faith the, these qualities in increasing measure. And so the, the question is, are we adding these to our faith? Now, by review, let me point out, last week we mentioned to get the most out of this series. Our goal is to uh, memorize Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. I know some of y'all are saying, I'm not into memorization. I'm not good. It's not a gift. I, I've heard it all a million times. Um, however... We want to do this. Now, this is, this is the goal for this series, is really that we maximize our spiritual potential in this world. I mean, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be horrific to get to heaven one day and to find out that you had all these gifts and all these opportunities, all these resources, whatever, 
and you, you squandered them. I don't, I don't think he's going to do this, but, but if he would show us what we could have done. And we see what we really did with what he gave us. I mean, don't you want to be a place where you maximize your spiritual potential, that you leave it all on the field, as it were, while we're down here? That's a place for an amen. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Can you can you imagine? Can you imagine, just think? Can you imagine a church where everybody in there is saying, I want to maximize my spiritual potential in this world? Oh, man. You know, look out world. Here we come. So we're going to seek to, to quote and we're going to do it right now. And you don't have to stand up and put anyone on the spot. If you forgot, if you don't know, whatever, just mouth the words watermelon. And see, I look, I think everybody's quoting this. It's wonderful. Uh, first service, I botched it pretty good. So that's OK. We'll see what we can do any better this time. So quote with me. I'm starting off in the NIV. Who knows what version I'll be with before we're done here. OK, but quote with me. You can say it out loud. Simon Peter. A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be to you in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Now, a little if you're like me, a little bit shaky yet, but by the end of these several weeks, we should have this down. This will help us. Remind us to add to our faith these things. Now, let me show you, too, just a little bit of review what we did last week. We're not going to do this every week, but just let me point it out. Last week, we started it at verse 1. We went through the first four verses. Peter's talking about salvation proper. And last week, we said, okay, salvation's got three aspects. You've got justification when you come to know him. You've got glorification when we get to heaven one day. But you've got this big thing in the middle called sanctification. That's what happens from the time we first came to know him to the time we get to heaven. Um, we look like this. When, when Adam and Eve were first created, God placed within them his spirit. Uh, he breathed in their nostrils the nephesh, the spirit of, of God. But when sin entered into the world, Scripture says that Paul says spiritually he died. And that is replaced with what the Bible calls our old nature, our sin nature, the flesh, the several different uh, terms for it. Doesn't mean you're demon possessed. It doesn't mean you're not a nice person. It doesn't mean you can't be kind. What it means is you're living your life independent from God. You might be spiritual. You might be religious a little bit when you choose to invite him in to be part of the things or not. But basically, you're living your life independent from God. You're spiritually dead. You're separated from him. But at one point, maybe you realize There is a God. He's a personal God, and I can have a relationship with him. And you realize that this is why Jesus came and to die for your sin. And so you trust yourself to him. When that happens, according to Scripture, God seals you with his Holy Spirit. He gives you the Spirit again, maybe. Uh, Romans 8, 9 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. You have the Holy Spirit at that point. Paul would let us know that our, our sin nature has been crucified at that point. It's been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But your, your sin nature, though he's on the cross, he has no legal binding on your life anymore. He's still alive, screaming out, shouting out. And Galatians lets us know that we've got this battle inside us between the spirit and the flesh. And as we would seek to uh, let the spirit win, that's what often theologians would refer to as sanctification. Got another chart for you. Show us the other chart. Okay, when you come to know Christ, you're positioned in the heavenlies. You're up in the heavenlies. Bible says you have been sanctified. You have been made holy. All your sins are washed away, past, present, and future. That makes you perfect, right? Yeah, you, it's not degrees of perfection. If you've got no sin, you've got no sin. That's our position. 
But practically, that's not our practice, is it? And so what sanctification is often referred to as is taking your earthly practice and making it match your heavenly position. The illustration we gave is if you grew up in the moral ghetto, the moral gutter, and suddenly you were adopted into the palace as a prince or princess, your position is going to radically change. But you know what? Your words probably will not change overnight. Your values will not change overnight. The way you think probably will not change overnight. You got you, you, now your position as you're a prince or princess now, but you got to start acting princessy and prince, whatever. The, you got to start acting more royal. You got to bring your your practice into line with your position. That's what we were referring to. Well, Peter goes through this, and he first word he points out is goodness. Now we talked about goodness last week. We said uh, d- different definitions on goodness. Goodness is really living. Um, in fulfillment, according to your intended purpose, uh, when God created everything, right? We, we go all the way back to Genesis. He created the plants and the trees and the animals and everything. And he looked at it and he said, it is good. And that's that it was doing what it was supposed to be doing. It was acting in the way it was supposed to be acting. Everything was right, uh, perfectly aligned with how it was supposed to be. That was good. We recognize in our fallen state, though we're a believer, our practice is not always good. It's not in line with what it's supposed to be. So this is an umbrella word in one sense, but yet it goes deeper. Because Peter, notice he doesn't say add to your calendar good things, right? He doesn't say add to your schedule good activities. No, Peter says add to your faith goodness. Goodness is a desire to see life and do life through God's eyes. Goodness is a spiritual sincerity. And Peter says it has got to start here. Peter knows that you can do good things and not be good at your core. Uh, I mean, God has blessed this church with Norm Adams, who's our church treasurer. Norm puts in a lot of hours for us on a weekly basis. We pay him squat, by the way, but he puts in a lot of hours on this. Um, works hard. Treasure is a hard job. Well, Peter knows his treasurer for his group was a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. You can do good things, but that doesn't mean you're good on the inside. If you do good things, but you do it from wrong motives, God calls that evil. You've just tainted it. I remember I was in school years ago, very ashamed, but... You know, it is what it is, right? I'd have quiet time, and, and, and uh, uh, that was wonderful. And then I'd get up, and I'd have unlock the door, and I'd put all my stuff away, and that kind of thing. And I started thinking, you know what? How's anyone going to know I did quiet time? So I put my books out there, and I opened my Bible, and I didn't remove them. I left them there. So when people walked in my room, they said, oh, wow, Mark has quiet time. Or they might have been thinking other things, right? That's how I pay for great. But either way, I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and I know you're thinking, oh, shame. But you all do the same thing. You have. You know you have. And this is what, this is what God, this is what Jesus says about that. Matthew 6. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness at your good deeds before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, for example, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. It's like, man, they wanted man's approval. They got man's approval. Maybe, maybe not, but they don't have mine with it. When we do good things, but it stems from selfishness or some dysfunction, I just want to be important or whatever else, God says... I'm glad that that's your reward. 
Likewise, somebody who's got a heart of goodness, that they're, they're got that holy, magnificent obsession. They're pushing after what he wants. Uh, they can do things that that the company may not appreciate. Give me an example. Stories told of a gal. She her kids grew, grew up. She raised her kids. Uh, they lived kind of on a farmette just outside the town. But she wanted her own business. So she decided she would get into eggs. So she got chickens and chicken houses and started doing eggs and selling eggs. Well, I, for whatever reason, her, this really business took off. And so people started coming in and her business started growing. And her neighbors and relatives recognized that things were going very well. So they had a plan for her windfall. And they said, you know what? Since we've got to put up with your traffic all the time, you know, maybe you can give us eggs at a discount price or you know, free if you want to. And she said, no, full price. Well, my goodness. The people began to talk. You know how people talk. We don't talk. You know how other people talk. And what would they? I can't believe her. She's unkind and she's selfish and she just wants money for herself and she doesn't care about us. And on. But if they would have been watching, they would notice that every week or so she stopped off in town at the orphanage and made a pretty hefty donation. One hundred percent of all the proceeds went to the do- went to the orphanage. It was between her and God. It wasn't between her and people. Let them think what they wanted. This was between her, her and God. Sometimes if your heart is good, you're not making your decisions based on what other people are going to think. You're not setting the Bible out so people are going to think you're doing okay. You're not going to answer the question so you think, people think you, you got your knowledge together. Uh, now, when I was a little boy, they had a, a starfish, star-kissed uh, commercial. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Charlie the Tuna. It's kind of a cartoon thing. And Charlie is down under the ocean. He's this purple tuna. And, and, and this hook would always drop. And the only bait on the hook, if I remember this right, was a piece of paper that said Starkist. For whatever reason, I don't... A little kid, who knows what's going on. But, but Charlie wanted to get caught. I don't, I don't know. But, but he tried to impress Starkist with his good taste. And so he had chandeliers and he'd have berets. And he'd have all... Every, this series of commercials, he always had these different things that he did to try to impress Starkist. And then he would say, okay, Starkist is going to see what good taste I have and they're going to want me. And then he would go for the hook and it would be pulled up just before he could get to it. And the narrator would come on. Remember this? He'd say, sorry, Charlie. Starkis does not want tunas with good taste. Starkis want tunas that, yes, that taste good. And I think what Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying is, is God is not interested in Christians with good taste, with good activities on his schedule primarily or, or only, but, but Christians that are good at their core. And the activities spring from that, not just the... the uh, uh, programming the things we can do on the outside now if you start with this idea that okay i i, I want to know what he wants me to do and your spiritual sincerity and you want to please him and you want to do what's right peter says that's the start but now let me give you the second word it says for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge yes you have a desire. I want, to, I, want to, I want to do whatever it takes. Well, Peter says, good. Now you need to figure out what that whatever it takes is. And sometimes in the church, you just, just, you've seen this, you know it. Sometimes we think if I am heart right, I can be head wrong. Right? I can make poor decisions with my family, with my finances, with my time, whatever. I can be head wrong as long as I'm heart right. And somehow God is going to just 
overshadow all these things. As long as my heart is right, I can be head wrong. Now, we know of people who are head right and heart wrong. We don't want to go down that road. But if we deny wisdom, well, we often will face the consequences of it. So we don't want to go down that road. So we ask ourselves, what does knowledge really mean? And it's interesting, words, Greek words, gnosko, epigonosko, and that's different for us. Because when we think of knowledge, what, you know, school's starting back. You're thinking, okay, I've got to cram my head with stuff so when the test comes, man, I can spit out the answers. And if I get an A, I've got lots of knowledge. And if I do this lots of times, I'm on the National Honor Society. And if I do this lots of times, they give me a degree. I've got lots of knowledge. But the Hebrews and the Greeks would have said, saying, what are you talking about? Because the, the words are practical knowledge. They're, they're things, it's not really knowledge until it's into your bloodstream, until you are acting on it. Let me, let me show you Matthew 7. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you well i mean did jesus know him i mean they're gonna come before him he's gonna be who are you how'd you get here who created you he knows who they are of course he created them he's got he knows them better than they know themselves but the word know is experiential it is it is it is a relationship it's not just conscious facts he's got that down that's not what it is it's it's a relationship he goes on, Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin, did not know sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Obviously, Jesus had conscious and cognizant understanding of what sin was. This is why he was here. He knew sin in many ways much better than we do. He knew the consequences and, and the, the pain that it causes. That's why he became it for us. But what he didn't know... Is sin experientially. He didn't choose to do it like you and I have done. He went through life without making that, that choice. It wasn't an experiential thing for him. So he could say, we could say he did not know sin. Adam and Eve, you know, Scripture says that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. Well, obviously, it wasn't just I know what color eyes she has. There's a little bit more going on there than that. There was an experiential intimacy thing. So, so knowledge is, is, is real important. When Peter says add to your faith knowledge, he's not just talking about facts in your head. He's talking about something that's going to transform you. Facts in your head that's going to make their way down and make you somebody uh, incredible. So we want to look at a case study this morning to spend the remainder of time, a few minutes, Picture paints a thousand words, right? Let's look at a picture that's going to show us what this understanding, what this knowledge is. So Luke chapter 24. If you'll turn in your Bibles, Luke 24. You know what I want? To, well, I'm going to probably sometime pay folk to sit out there. And when I say that, they're going to go. <laughs> so I can hear this. I think, oh, folk are. Too. OK, Luke 24. Verse 13. Let's start verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Notice the distance. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they as they talked and discussed these things that were discussed, it's really they were fighting uh, verbally. The things were getting a little bit hot. Uh, with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Just by background. 
Passover is winding down. Passover is a huge holiday, right? In Jerusalem, the, the population in Jerusalem swells from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. Jews, pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world converge on Jerusalem for this very, very sacred event. And as they come, they're thinking one thing, especially this Passover, and that is that the Messiah is supposed to be here. Their parents told them, their grandparents told them, their great-grandparents told them, on and on and on, the Messiah, be waiting for the Messiah. But suddenly, this guy had come on the scene a few years back, named Jesus. And Jesus has raised the dead. Some of them have seen the dead that he raised. He said, some said he walked on water. We, he created things out of, out of just little fish and bread. He, he healed lepers. He, he commanded demons to leave, showing that the whole other world is, is underneath him. He spoke as one having authority. When the, when the Pharisees spoke, they would quote, you know, rabbi this and rabbi that and rabbi the other thing. But Jesus, what did he say? He said, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. I mean, he spoke as one who had authority. And on top of that, he was kind and he was nice and he was gracious and he was forgiving. This was the Messiah. And so everybody in Jerusalem was pumped. The Messiah is finally here. We waited hundreds of years. This is incredible. And so they're excited. Everyone in Jerusalem is excited except the Sanhedrin, right? They're not really excited because these these peasants want to make Jesus king. Well, when Jesus is made king, guess who's out, right? They're out. But they also know this, that... The peasants are not talking about a spiritual king. They want someone to overthrow Rome. And when the Romans hear about this revolution, this coup that is starting in Jerusalem, don't you think they're going to take this line down? They're going to come in with an iron fish and smash everything and smash them. And so they do what they think they only can do. They have Jesus crucified and killed. These guys walking out are, are disciples. They're not part of the apostles, although we'll find out they know them. But they are disciples. They're like you and I. They're followers of Jesus. They have, they have given it. They are walking with him. They are trusting him. They are, they are publicly proclaiming Jesus. But they just watched him killed. Jesus comes and walks with them, but they can't recognize him. He asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there these days? In other words, he says, What? Are you clueless? Don't you understand what's going on for crying out loud when you've just come from Jerusalem? Weren't you there? Don't you? Were you sleeping the last few days? Who are you? And you know, this, is a, this is so ironic because obviously he's talking to Jesus. Jesus knows. Jesus was in the trial room. Jesus was on the cross. Jesus was in the grave. Jesus knows what's going on. They don't. And that's the readers know this. Uh, so it makes this a fun story. But these guys had no clue who they were talking to. And so Jesus says, well, what things about Jesus of Nazareth? I like this. They're going to tell Jesus about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This is, I mean, this, this is not incredibly ironic. They had hoped he would redeem Israel. When they saw him hanging on the cross, their hope was dashed. However, we both know that when he was hanging on the cross, he was redeeming Israel. These guys didn't have a clue. But we need to know they're, they're disoriented with grief at this point. They are, are, everything they had cashed their whole life on at this is, is gone. What happened? 
They told their kids about this. They tell everybody about what what happened. It's done. Hopeless. The wheels have, have come off. Jesus didn't respond the way we thought he was supposed to respond, which often brings lots of despair for all of us when we think he's supposed to do this. And we're sure this is God's will and God's going to do this. And then he doesn't act the way we thought he was going to act. Well, I thought he was God. I thought this was true. This is where they're at. I thought my my hope is dashed. And he says, uh, and what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. The, the, the Emmaus guys are, are putting emphasis on not being able to see Jesus, right? Verse 23, but didn't find his body. Now, they're assuming he's still dead. Uh, but him they did not see. Again, it's the ironic thing. They're six inches away from Jesus' face. But they can't lie. Jesus, you know, would you know where he's at? You know, where'd he go? And it's a Jesus, and they can't see him though. For whatever reason, they can't, they can't see him. And he said to them, verse 25, now it's Jesus' turn to speak. They had called him clueless earlier. Now it's Jesus' turn to return the favor. He says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe. And notice what he says here to believe the woman's testimony, to believe the testimony of the empty tomb. To believe what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's saying, listen, okay, I can understand you not believing the women. I mean, after all, they're women. And um, Jesus just raised people from the dead when he was here. And he cast out the demons and he said he was going to do this. So I can understand you not believing the women. I can understand you not believing the empty tomb. I mean, there were just guards watching it and the seal. And and now it's empty. But, okay, I I can give you room there, too. But why did you not believe the scripture? Jesus rebukes them for this. Don't say, Jesus does not hold anyone responsible. As far as pushing you to know something you could not have known. He doesn't do that. But here he's, he's expecting these guys. They should have been able to know. Simeon knew. They should have been able to know. They're going, wow, wow, what's the word? What's the Bible have to do with this? He says, why do you think I gave it to you so you can memorize facts? I gave it to you because it tells of me. This is real. This is real. This is real key principle. Bible is not about Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Ruth and Esther. It's about the God of. Noah and Abraham and Moses and Ruth and and Esther. That's incredibly important. And they they lost that. They lost it. It's important, I think, to me for Jesus to say, I am on every page. We would think he's just going to go to Isaiah 53. But he starts at Moses. He talks about Moses and the prophets. That's categorization for the entire, what we'd refer to as the Old Testament. He says, the whole thing speaks of me. So he does a two, three-hour Bible study. So they're walking to Emmaus. He starts at the beginning. What do we? What do you say? I don't know what he said, but maybe it was uh, in Genesis. Jesus is your Creator, God. In Exodus, He's your Passover Lamb. In Leviticus, He's your High Priest. In Numbers, He's the He's the cloud that leads you through the desert. 
In Deuteronomy, he's our teacher. In Joshua, he's the commander of the host of the Lord, right? In Judges, he's the divine deliverer. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the promise. In First and Second Kings, he's the King of Kings. In First and Second Chronicles, he's the seed of, of David. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In, in Nehemiah, he's the, the rebuilder of broken walls and broken lives and broken dreams. In, in Esther, he's the courageous mediator. In Job, he's the redeemer. Didn't Job say, my redeemer lives? In Psalms, he's the, the, the morning song. In, in Proverbs, he's the voice of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's what it's all about. In, in Song of Solomon, he is our eternal lover. In Isaiah, what is he? Well, he's a wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he just happens to be the suffering servant as well. In Jeremiah, he's the balm of Gilead. In Lamentations, he's the voice that cries out for those that are lost. In Ezekiel, he's the one that, that breathes life into that which is dead. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband when we've gone away. In in Joel, he's the power of the spirit. In Amos, he's the arms that uphold us. In Obadiah, he's our sovereign God. In Jonah, he's the the one of compassion. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our divine judger. Then you've got Habakkuk and Zephaniah, where he's the one that pleads for our revival. In Haggai, he restores all things. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. In Malachi, he's, he's the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. And that's the Old Testament. Jesus didn't go into the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. But if he had, Matthew, he's the king of kings, right? Mark, he's our servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. And in John, he's the son of God. And in Acts, he's the savior of the world. And you got Romans, where he's the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he's our guide. And in 2 Corinthians, he's our victory. In Galatians, he's our freedom. In Ephesians, he's our head. In Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, he's our completeness. First and Second Thessalonians, he's our hope. In First and Second Timothy, he's our, our faithful truth. In Philemon, I like this one. Our Titus, he is the, the divine pastor. That's a good one. In, in Philemon, he's our redeemer. In Hebrews, he's our perfection. In James, he's our example. In First and Second Peter, he's our comfort. In First and Second Third. John, he's the beloved one. In in Jude, he's the foundation. And in Revelation, he's the coming king. This is Jesus Christ, who just. (laughs) Jesus, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's saying, the great I am. I'm the, the son of man. I'm the lamb of God. I'm the first and the last. He's all over the pages of scripture. Now, this is why we have to add to our faith knowledge. Not so we can have Bible facts. Not so we can have the right answer in Sunday school. Not so people think we're important because we, we're smart. But so we can know him. This is, this is why Jesus was chiding these guys. They should have known him through the word. And they didn't. Now, let me throw this out. The church folk been around here a long time. Maybe you've been real committed to studying the Bible. But in all honesty, you ask yourself, I'm real committed to studying the Bible. But reality is it really hasn't changed me a whole lot lately. Let me, let me encourage you to make yesterday the last day you studied the Bible to know the Bible. How about this? <laughs> Thank you. How about this? Study the Bible to know God and to know his will. The thing that should drive us to this book is to know him. Now, this is the coolest thing for me I, because we can know him as well as we want to. It's, it balls in our court. You, and he's given us everything right here to know him. And he says, when you search for me with all your heart, you know what? I'll be found by you. What an amazing, amazing thing. Now, we know 
that we can know the scripture and not know God. I've got some guys on my shelf, very liberal guys who know the language. They know the culture. They know the peoples. They don't know God. Uh, Pharisees knew the scripture very well. They didn't know God. Devils quoting the scripture to Jesus. He doesn't know, know God. You can know the scripture, not know God. We can't ever forget this, though. You cannot know God without knowing the scripture. We have to add to our, our faith knowledge. We've got, we, just, we just have to. And so here's the question. What's your plan? What's your plan? I'm just kind of hoping it'll happen. Listen, when you were trying to get your CPA exam, when you were going before the bar exam, bar exam stuff, when you were doing your state board certification, were you, were you happy with five minutes a day for every other day? Do you think that would do it? That wasn't going to do it. I'm not picking on saying anything. All I'm, just remember this, guys. This is the deal. Remember when you were trying to win your wife? You're trying to woo her. You know what? You didn't need to go get lessons on how to do this. You figured it out. You probably tried a bunch of junk that didn't work. That's girls A, B, and C. But then you finally got it right. You did something right. If we approach seeking to know him, know him through his word, you know what? With that same intensity, you know what? You're going to figure it out. It's going to happen. Let me share with you real quick what, 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 what I do. It's not uh, inspired or anything else. It's just what I'm doing right now. It works right now. Um, I use Tyndale commentaries. Tyndale, I love Tyndale. A lot of commentaries, somewhere like 800 pages on a verse. You know, I'm never going to get through that. Tyndale commentary, it's usually very solid theologically. They're short. I look it up. It says, oh, these are the, the verses, 25, chapter 25, 1 through 8. I read 25, 1 through 8, thinking about it. Look at the commentary that's going to tell me stuff about the language and the culture and the people. Then I pull out my spiral notebook and I say, okay, how does what God's trying to say here going to intersect with my life today? And I write that down. And pray it. Go, come on, try and remember it for the rest of the day. This doesn't need to be something that takes 15 hours a day, but it just, consistency is huge. We need to spend time with God's Word. Secondly, let me encourage you to spend time with people who know God's Word. Um, And specifically, let me share, as far as books go, I've got a reading list. I'm going to print this baby in the bulletin the next week. So, Daryl, wherever you are, I've already given you a heads up. We've got to get this thing in the bulletin for next week. There's a lot of twaddle out there. There's, there's many other good books, but there's some books out there that are just going to hurt you theologically. These are some, some things that have helped me. Uh, higher the number doesn't mean you're a better person if you read it. It's just more philosophically oriented. Uh, the lower number's very inspirational. They've meant a lot to me. Again, we'll put this list in the, in the bulletin. But just to be on a quest, I want to know him through his word. I'm going to hang out with other people who know him through his word as well. That thirst, I think, will get you there. We, we've talked about George Mueller in the past as one of the heroes. We know that George Mueller started a uh, great orphan work in, in England, uh, mid-late 1800s. At uh, one point, he had five orphan houses with 2,000 orphans coming there. He never sent out a, a soliciting letter for funds, never talked to big donors trying to get cash. It was all through his, his faith. But a second organization that he started that we are not aware of very often, but that is called the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. In this second organization, they produced... Again, he didn't have any income coming in other than his faith. They produced and sent out 285,000 full Bibles. They produced and sent out 1.5 million New Testaments. This organization, again, no money coming in other than his faith, 
they supported 150 missionaries, including a guy named Hudson Taylor who's taking on China. Who the church in China today is there because of Hudson Taylor, who says no one encouraged him like George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was a gambler, he was a drunkard, he was a liar, until he met Christ. He was an average Joe, but he knew. I've got to add to my faith knowledge. So look at, listen to what Mueller says about this. He says, for the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I've been doing this for 47 years. I've read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus, my peace and joy have increased more and more. Do you ever think there's a connection between somebody who's not ineffective or unproductive? They are knocking down the kingdom of hell and his commitment to the word of God. I think there's more than a coincidence here. So let me ask you, let me ask me, what is the plan for adding to your faith knowledge?